we started going to the Bible three, three and a half years ago, and two weeks ago we finished the Bible, um, and four month, uh, eight months ago our shepherd left, Josh Thompson left, and we were given two new great teachers, um, Alfredo and Aaron, and uh, Alfredo came on knowing that he would be leaving in August, uh, we have a few more weeks until Alfredo leaves us. Um, and since we we decided to start uh, the Bible over, we decided to start fresh with a new teacher. Um, Aaron and Alfredo will still be involved. Alfredo will teach uh, one more time before he leaves, and then Aaron will be um, in once a month to teach. Jeremy Fletcher will be in also. Um, but our new teacher is Tyler Bianco. Um, but before I have him come up, I just... Uh, Tyler. Tyler, uh, Tyler came up through this study. Tyler was there when we were at Java Bliss. Um, he came faithfully when we were here. Um, he's just a great guy, a great teacher, and uh, I can't wait to see what the Lord is going to do through him. Um, so would you welcome Tyler Bianco? Every time, uh, every time I get behind a microphone, I, I don't know if, uh, I don't know how many of you know this, but I, uh, I work at uh, Harvest, and uh, I work in the high school ministry, and so sometimes that calls for me to like get behind the microphone and do announcements and stuff like that. And every time I get behind a microphone, I feel like I'm a comedian or something like that, and so I get this awkward like feeling that I need to be funny. So I'm, I'm gonna try not to just be funny for the sake of being funny with you guys, but. I'm really excited to, uh, to be able to take this study over. You know, as Rob said, uh, you know, when, when we were at Java Bliss, uh, I started coming. I don't even remember what, what prompted me to come, who invited me. But I started coming, and, and it was like, okay, well, we're, we're reading through the Bible, and we're starting in Genesis. I was, I was here when, uh, when we were actually in Genesis the first time around. And, uh, and I loved this study. I fell in love with it and, uh, I got to know Josh pretty well and he really took me under his wing and, and, uh, and really began to disciple me. And just before Josh Thompson left, it was actually the, I think two weeks before his last study here, uh, I came up to Josh and shared with him that the Lord was laying it on my heart to go and to start a Bible study at Cal Baptist. And so I went and I did that, and that's what I've been doing. And I took the model of the upper room because I love it so much, and I planted it there. And uh, that study's been going very well and, and, uh, and will continue to go on, uh, only without me now. Uh, as uh, Robert and Alfredo and Aaron and, and the leadership here asked me to, to come back to the upper room Bible study, my home, and, uh, and to start back in Genesis again. I'm really pumped about it. And uh, before we really get into the night, I just want to go ahead and pray again. So will you pray with me? Father, this is, is, and always was, and always will be your Bible study. And so, God, I, I'm so thankful for, for Josh for, for starting it, Lord, faithfully, uh, continuing it on, and then passing the torch to Alfredo and to Aaron, and, and for their continued diligence in, in preaching your word week after week. God, I pray that you would continue that. Continue the work you've started, Lord, not only in this study, but in each and every one of our lives here. God, I pray that above all else, we would be known as a study that, that we are just about your word. 
just Jesus stuff, God. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And God, as we continue to look to you, I pray that you would move in this study, in this place, and move here now through your word. I pray this in your precious son's name. Amen. Well, tonight's a little bit of a night of introductions. Uh, Not only an introduction to me, uh, as I know most of you, but some of you are are fresh faces to me. Um, Not only an introduction to me is who I am, uh, you know, in taking over the study, but hey, like I said, we're starting back in Genesis. We're in the beginning of the Bible, so we need to do an intro of, well, the Bible. And uh, since we're in Genesis, we need to do an intro of Genesis, and then we'll be in Genesis chapter 2. So tonight is, a, is definitely a night of introductions, and I really wanted to start that off with telling you a little bit uh, about my life. And so I'm going to give you the abbreviated micro version of my testimony for those of you who don't already know me. I grew up in, uh, for the most part, a Christian home. Um, I say for the most part because that didn't start happening until I was about uh, eight years old. My parents, when I was very young, didn't go to church at all. My mom was raised a Christian, but my dad was raised a Mormon. And so my parents didn't go to church, didn't ever take me to church. And uh, a neighbor girl, her name was Marjana Lawson, uh, she gave me a copy of the Jesus tape. And I remember five years old, I actually remember watching the Jesus tape, and there was the sinner's prayer at the end. And so I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I don't remember this part, but my mom tells me that I ran into the kitchen right after and told her that I had given my life to Christ. And that kind of broke my mom's heart, uh, you know, because her being uh, raised as a Christian and her son gives his life to Christ without her having any influence on it whatsoever. And so she decided at that point to start taking me and my little brother uh, to church. And so we started going to harvest uh, on Sunday nights before it was day seven. And, uh, you know, me and my brother would be in the children's ministry, and my mom would sit in the main service with Greg. And, uh, but my dad would never go. This caused uh, a little bit of a disconnect between my mom and my dad, which eventually had led to their divorce. So at seven years old, my parents got a divorce, and my mom decided that the best thing for me and my brother to keep us stable and now to keep us growing in Christ would be to put us in Christian school. So I started in third grade going to Harvest Christian Elementary School and went there all through sixth grade learning about God. Then left there, continued on my Christian school education at Woodcrest. I went there for middle school and high school. And in my seventh grade year at Woodcrest, uh, for some reason, I was not like, I was not a fit kid. I was a little bit pudgy at this point, and uh, I really didn't do well in PE. I kind of sucked at it when I was at Harvest. And, and so, for some strange reason, Billy York, who is the children's ministry director at, at Harvest, is also the cross-country coach at Woodcrest, and saw me at my older brother's track meet and asked me to be on the cross-country team. So I was just stoked that I'm going into seventh grade being on some sports team, and I didn't even have to try out. I, I actually didn't know what cross-country was until I showed up. I had no idea that it was running. Like, that's all you do is run. I'm like, wait, but where's, like, the ball or racket or bat or something? We just run. Okay, so we actually... Uh, we practiced right down the street from here at the Citrus Park, Riverside Citrus Park, and we'd run in the Citrus Park and in the hills right around here, and I remember my first race, this has nothing really to do with my testimony, but it's just kind of funny. I remember my first race that I ever ran, it was a three-mile race, 
And I ran it in 31 minutes and 11 seconds. And uh, if you don't know anything about cross country, um, a, like a good time for a high school athlete for, you know, three mile race is 16 minutes. So <laughs> I didn't do well at all, but I stuck with it. And uh, there was actually a guy who is, uh, he was a junior in high school. His name was Grant Nunnally. And he was the fastest runner in the state. He was the fastest runner in the state. And he was just a really nice, godly guy. And he was cool to me. And here I am, a, a seventh grader, a little middle schooler, and this junior in high school who's a stud runner and a stud soccer player, good at everything. And it's not like we were friends or anything, but he was, he was really nice to me. And so I idolized this guy, Grant. And he was like, oh, oh man, everything that I wanted to be like. And, uh, and on December 11th, 2002, uh, Grant Nunnally got into a car accident and died. And uh, I'll never forget the next morning going to school. And the only thing I remember is first period, and I was just bawling. And I, the next thing I remember that day uh, was sitting on my bed at home that night. And I was sitting there just cross-legged on my bed, and I looked up at the ceiling and I said, you know what, God, forget you. Uh, I, don't, I don't care anymore. Uh, I don't want what you have for me. Understand, I still believe God existed. I still believe everything that I was learning in Bible class at school. I was still coming to church at Harvest in the junior high ministry under Pastor Forrest and, and was like this Bible trivia machine. And everyone thought I was doing great, but I, I just didn't care anymore. I believe that God was real, but I gave God the finger. And, uh, and I decided to live life how I was going to live it. Because if God was going to do something like that to me and to Grant and his family, he didn't deserve my obedience. And so from that point, I, I did. I started to live life my own way. Um, I won't get into the details necessarily, but uh, you know, I, I started partying and, and drinking a little bit and uh, got really in with the wrong crowd. And, uh, and this continued on through my freshman year in high school until my sophomore year, my sophomore year in high school, I decided, well, I'm 16 now. And, uh, I think I want to be a junior high counselor. Cause like I said, I was plugged in junior high ministry and loved it. Loved the counselors. I had some really cool counselors in the junior high ministry. If you're not doing anything, like if you're not serving anywhere, go get plugged in a junior high ministry because those kids will just look up to you and you'll just make their day. It'll be, it'll be great, I promise. But I decided I wanted to be a junior high counselor because those guys were cool. I wanted to be a cool counselor. So I go, I fill out all the paperwork and I go and I sit down and I have a meeting with Pastor Forrest Ricard and he goes through and he's like, all right, well, I'm really excited, you know, about you being a counselor, but obviously just so you know, uh, you know, you, you have to be, uh, daily growing in your walk with, with Jesus and in your Bible and encouraging these kids to be in their Bible and praying and spending time with God. And obviously, you know, you can't have anything bad in your life, like partying or drinking or, you know, all these. And it was like everything he said, I wasn't. And it was kind of like, I don't know why I never realized I needed to be a Christian to be a counselor at church, but it just never really clicked for me. And so that day, Sunday, I made a decision that I was just going to have to really give my life to Christ and be real. And uh, so the next day I stopped hanging out with all my friends. And uh, from that point on, uh, 
I just became a Jesus nut. I lit my campus on fire, and uh, I started something like three different Christian clubs, and this is actually where Josh Thompson first really entered into being a part of my life. He started a uh, men's Bible study at Woodcrest called uh, David's Mighty Men. And, uh, you know, he just sort of discipled me through that, and I took it from him when he went to Mexico and, and just took it from there. But I guess the rest, as they say, is history. God's been using me to do some radical things, and he's taken me all over the world to do it. I've been able to, to have fun and, uh, and enjoy getting closer to Christ day by day, year by year. And, yeah, there's definitely been times where I've where I've hit a, a bump in the road and where I've been in, in different funks here and there. But all in all, my life has been from that Sunday morning has been about pleasing Christ. And, uh, and so that's the, the short intro to me. But this study isn't about me. It's about God's word. That's what we're here for. And, you know, as we get to know each other a little bit better and as the, the months go by, you're going to hear plenty more about me in my life. Uh, but for now, we're going to dig into God's word. Because that's what this is really all about. Intro to the Bible. Like I said, tonight's going to be a night of introductions. And so that's one of the biggest things that we need to look at right now is we start the Bible back over, studying it chapter by chapter. Uh, If you don't normally come to this study or haven't been doing it, how we do things here is we read a chapter a day as a family. We read a chapter a day. So today we're in Genesis 2. Yesterday we were in Genesis 1. If you didn't read it, catch up. And uh, tomorrow, read Genesis 3, and so on and so forth. Keep reading, and next week we'll meet back here, and we'll cover Genesis chapter 9, and we'll look at what God has for us there. But it's important for you guys to be reading the Bible. Why? Because it's God's word for you. It's like a love letter written directly to you with you specifically in mind. And I promise you, I promise you, no matter what book of the Bible we're in, no matter how boring it might seem, even Numbers, even Numbers, which happens to be my favorite book in the Bible, uh, every time you read, I promise, if you spend time really setting yourself apart in the morning and God speak to me from your word and you read, God will speak to you. He will radically change your life through his word, I promise, because he's radically changed mine through his word. And so that's what we're doing here. That's what this is all about, the Bible. So what is this thing? Well, it's a book comprised of 66 other books inside of it, written by about 40 authors. It's a little bit disputed. Some say there was a couple more. Some say there was a couple less. But we'll just say 66 books, 40 different authors, over a period of 1,600 years. 1,600 years, Genesis to Revelation. It was written over that period of time. And uh, the Bible... As we know from from the book of Timothy, it's inspired by God. Men wrote it down, yeah, like I said, 40 different authors, but this is literally breathed out by God, his word. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And like I said earlier, it's, it's literally God's love letter to you. How many of you have ever gotten a love letter before? Yes? Okay, there was like no response. I'm like, wow, this is This is sad. Is this a singles ministry or? I'm sorry. If you're a part of the singles ministry, my bad. Daniel Garibay is a part of the singles ministry. He was raising his hand. But anyway, if you've ever gotten a love letter, think about this. The, the last time you got a love letter, how did you read it? Was it sort of like you open the thing and 
you read the first line, dear babe, I really, well, I'm going to put this thing away. I'll read it later. No, forget about it. I mean, the last time I got a little note, well, I mean, I guess that was more of like something you did in high school as you wrote notes to each other, but whatever. Just imagine with me back in, in high school and you got a note from your boyfriend or your girlfriend. The first thing you do, you get away, you open that thing and you read that thing top to bottom top to bottom and then you read it again and then you start analyzing different words that she put like well why'd she call me babe why didn't she call me hun what does that mean is it like i'm not sure what that means and and why did she why did she say like you a lot why didn't she say love me a lot and and you start analyzing it and picking it apart you read it over and over and over again chances are you tuck it under your pillow at night and uh, you sleep on it just so i don't know by osmosis you can absorb a little bit more but if this is how we read love letters, why don't we read our Bibles like this? So often, and I, I'm speaking from my own life, don't get me wrong. So often I get in this routine of feeling like I need to just do my devos. And I wake up in the morning and I do my devo. And that means I open up and I read a little bit and, you know, like a chapter or maybe two if I'm feeling extra spiritual that day. And, uh, and I just read it like I would a textbook or a novel or, or with even less attention to detail. I put it down, I go about my day, check it off my spiritual to-do list. That's not how this should be, family. As we read through the Bible, I challenge you, I encourage you, if this truly is God's love letter to you, if it truly is inspired, literally breathed out by him, oh, pour yourself into this thing. Don't just read a chapter a day. Read as many as you possibly can. Devour God's word. Read all over the place. Yeah, it's good to read front to back, which is what we're doing in this study, but read somewhere else too. Read God's word morning, noon, and night. That's what David said in Psalm 119. He said he meditated on God's word morning, noon, and night. Man, that's how we should be studying this thing. And so as we get into this word, as we get into the Bible, I challenge you, don't just read it, but meditate on it. Chew over it. Study it. Intro to the Bible. This is a sick thing we're holding in our hands. It's not something to just put on our shelf and collect dust and only break, break out every Tuesday. Read this thing. Read your Bible. Do it. I dare you. But not just intro to me and not just intro to the Bible, but we also have to look at an intro to Genesis. I know this is a little choppy, and I really worked out in my head a bunch of different ways I could make this flow better, but with so many intros together, it just had to be choppy, so my bad. But intro to Genesis. What's this book all about? Well, we've looked at the Bible, 66 books, right? 40 different authors. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible. The very first book, and so... Think of Genesis as sort of like the prologue to a book. I don't know about you, but I never read the prologue to a book. I, uh, I just get right into chapter one, and usually you miss out on something when you do that. And so many people, when they get to the Bible, they, uh, they're like, okay, I'm going to read the Bible. And they open up to Genesis, and they read Genesis 1, and they feel like it has no application to their life whatsoever. They put down the Bible, they never read it again. Or what they do is they, they skip Genesis, and they skip pretty much the Old Testament altogether, and they start reading in in just the New Testament. That's all they ever read. It's all they ever cover, New Testament, 
And for the most part, they just read the Gospels or maybe Paul's epistles. But we're looking at the prologue to the Bible. And why is that important? Well, because God intros the entire Bible in Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's the book of beginnings. And as we study through Genesis, I'm going to remind us of that time and time and time again, that that's the theme of the book of Genesis, is it's the book of beginnings. It's God's introduction to his word. And in in his introduction, in his book of beginnings, he shows us himself through two things. The first thing that we're going to look at is he shows us himself through his creation. In Genesis, we're going to see that he intros his word and himself to us through his creation. And secondly, we're going to see that he reveals himself, he shows us himself through his chosen people. Yeah, Genesis, it first covers creation, covers the fall, covers the flood, the whole Tower of Babel thing, and can't forget Noah. Then it jumps right into Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, God's chosen people, the beginning of of the nation of Israel, God shows us more of his character. And so as we read through Genesis, as we look at this thing, I challenge you, I encourage you, be looking for God revealing himself through his creation and God revealing himself through his chosen people once we get to Abraham there. But now that... Well, I, I almost forgot to. I, I forgot to add that as we, we, we look at Genesis, I understand that Genesis was most likely written by Moses. That's an important little piece of information. Don't want to forget that. It was most likely written by Moses, so keep that in the back of your mind, that uh, Moses wrote this after creation. Obviously, no one is there besides God to witness creation. And so God literally inspired Moses to write down the words, the account of creation and how it happened. So now that we have that, that in the back of our minds, this intro to the book of Genesis, before we jump into chapter two, I just want to look at one thing, and that's Genesis one, verse one. Many of you should know it from, by heart, but we'll look at it anyway, because it's only a page back from where you're at, probably. Genesis one, one, this is just to prove to you what I was talking about earlier. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a couple of things I want to glean from this before we jump into chapter 2. And and again, forgive the choppiness. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Like I said, Genesis is about God revealing himself first through his creation, secondly through his chosen people. And really, ultimately, that's what the Bible is about, is it's God revealing himself to us. And I love that the very first line in the Bible is, in the beginning, God. This is so important because it tells us so much about who God is. First, it tells us that God had no beginning. Because in the beginning, God was already there. In the beginning, God. He existed. We learn later in, in, we will learn later in God's conversation with Moses, that God says, I am that I am, that I was, and that I will be. He always was. He always existed. Nothing created God. Secondly, we, we learn that God created the heavens and the earth. This is important for two things. Number one, this life is not about us. This life has nothing to do with us. Imagine 
with me, if you will, that um, they, they walked back. But let's say Tyler was out here and he made a, a smoothie. Would, uh, you know, and you're going to hang out with Tyler, you're going to sit here and, and enjoy a smoothie. Would your time be about the smoothie or about Tyler? Well, if you came here to hang out with him, hopefully you wouldn't be talking to a smoothie. That would just be weird. No, it's not about the created thing. It's about who created it, right? This life can't be about us. It's impossible for life to be about us. And that's so important because Christians, I feel like we get that screwed up. We get it mixed up so much that we feel like we get wrapped up that our life is about us. But understand, family, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're nothing but, but his creation. And this is about him. And so keep that in mind now as we jump into Genesis chapter 2. That was quite an introduction. I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. We'll pause right there. So Genesis chapter 1, what we just talked about is God goes through his literal six days of creation. God created everything that existed, everything you see. The world, the atmosphere, the stars. He created this earth. He created uh, the, like the mountain ranges that you see out there behind you, the trees, the wood that, that built this building. In the beginning, in six days, God created everything that exists. And there's nothing that exists that he didn't create. It also says that God created, in the Hebrew, it's bara. means out of nothing. God created out of nothing. He didn't have any materials. If we were going to go build a birdhouse, we'd have to go to Home Depot and uh, get some wood, some nails, a tack hammer, and a saw, and we could put together a birdhouse. But God could just say, birdhouse, and it would exist out of nothing. That's how God created the heavens and the earth. And all of a sudden, we see in chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So everything gets done, is what that means. Everything's done, finished. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God rests. There was a guy that I was talking to not too long ago. He, um, his girlfriend came to the high school ministry, and, and she directed him to, to talk to me. So he hits me up on Facebook with all these intense, deep theological questions, and this was one of the biggest things that he had a problem with in the Bible. And it was just because he really misunderstood what it was talking about. He was so angry because he believed in God, but, but he was so angry at the Bible. This can't be real. This can't be true. Because how dare the Bible say that God had to rest? He misunderstood what was going on here. And, and I don't want you guys to miss it either. It's not that God got tired. God didn't have to rest. It's not that any power really left him. God's omnipotent. He has all the power, all power, all powerful, infinite power. Therefore, if he spends so much power, he still has an infinite supply. So he never gets tired. He never runs low on power. 
He never runs out of ability to create things, and he didn't get fatigued here. That's not what happened. In Hebrew, the word that's used here for rest can also be translated to cease or to stop. What we have here is God is ultimately saying he takes a look at creation, all that he's created, and on the seventh day, he stops. Why? It was finished. It was finished. It was perfect. God didn't have to rest because he was tired. He stopped because what he made was absolutely perfect. And it was impossible to really add anything to make it any better. It was finished. And in that being finished, there was rest. There was rest. I love that. I love that God stops and it says that he rests there when it was finished because it reminds me of something that happened a few thousand years later on a cross. When Jesus hanging there, his last words, he says, it is finished. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weak and wearied, and I will give you rest. Rest. It's interesting, of all the six days of creation, if you look back in chapter one, you see all the six days of creation, and it says at the end there, there's a phrase that says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and morning third day. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. But here on the seventh day, we see no phrase. There was evening and there was morning the seventh day. On the day that God rests, it was finished. That day, in a sense, as we see in the Bible, it never ended. And the same thing is true for the rest that we find in Christ. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, the rest that he has for us never ends. There's never a day where the rest that we have in Christ is not enough. There's never a day that the rest we have in Christ isn't sufficient. There's never a day when I need to be anxious or worried or upset I can rest in Christ. Why? Because he's taken my burden and my yoke of trying to live by the law to be perfect, to to be godly. He's taken that on himself and he's given me his burden, his yoke, which is easy and light, it says in Matthew 11. And now and forevermore we can rest in Christ. But here we are in Genesis chapter 2. God says, looks at his creation, he says, it's finished, it's done, and he stops. It's important to note one last thing about God resting or God stopping. He never stopped working. On the seventh day, he did not stop working. Because if you think about it, if God stopped working, so would everything else. So would everything else. Not only is God the creator of the entire universe, but the Bible says that he is the sustainer of the universe. He literally causes the earth to rotate around the sun. He causes the moon to rotate around the earth. He causes your heart to beat in your chest. He causes your lungs to expand and to contract, allowing breath to happen. He causes everything that happens here in creation to happen. And so it's important to remember, it's important to note in that God rests, he never stopped working. And the same is true for our rest in Christ. Yeah, we have rest in him. Jesus promised it, and it's true. And it 
covers every circumstance and every situation you could ever have in life. You can continue to always rest in Christ no matter what happens, but it doesn't mean you stop working. Doesn't mean you stop working. Jesus himself, he got in trouble a couple of times, right? Because the Pharisees come and how dare you heal that man on the Sabbath day? That blind guy, how dare you give him sight? It's the Sabbath day. You can't do work. And Jesus looks at me and says, my father continues to work to this day and so do I. Yeah, we have rest in Christ and God rests. He never stopped working though. He continued, to, he continued the work that he started in creation. And so in the same way, family, even though we have rest in Christ, never stop working. Never stop telling people about him. Never stop showing people how much he loves them. Never stop preaching the gospel. Never stop looking to bless God. That should never stop. Yeah, God rested on the seventh day, but, but it wasn't over from there. We'll keep reading, though. Chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and a watering, and was watering, I'm sorry, the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils like the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We'll pause right there. There's a couple of things I want to I point out in this right now. One of them is this. This is where we start seeing the phrase, the Lord God. If you read Genesis chapter 1, you don't see the Lord God anywhere in there. You just see God. In Hebrew, it's Elohim. That's God. So all while God is creating, he's Elohim. He's God. He is the creator, supreme creator and sustainer of the whole universe. But now all of a sudden we start seeing the phrase, Lord God. When he starts talking about man... And his creation of man, he switches from being referred to as God, Elohim, creator, to Lord God. This Lord God is Yahweh, Elohim. Yahweh, Elohim. And it's this word Yahweh that God uses when he's talking to Moses about his relationship to us. His relationship to people. And so we switch from being just the creator to being the creator And the Father, the God who desperately desires a relationship with us. I love that. I love that. The Lord God, we start seeing that now. Before he was just the creator, but once he decided to make us, he became so much more personal. And that's so true, guys. Yeah, God is the king He's the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. He sits on the throne. He makes everything spin. But he has chosen to relate to us on a personal level. God actually wants to have a relationship with you. He doesn't just want to be God. But he wants to be your God. He wants to be your father. It talks about in the Bible that that. That in Christ, we we now have been given a spirit to call 
God, Abba, Daddy. And I love that here as, as God starts to talk about and focus on his creation of us, his creation of man, he gets so personal. The Lord God. But we see that it talks about there was no bush of the field, no small plant in the field, and, uh, and there was no man to work the land. So what does God do? In verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is really cool to me because this is so intimate and personal. It reminds me of... Uh, you know, like I was telling you earlier, uh, I, I go to Harvest, and I grew up in the high school ministry, and, and you know, I was part of the SWAT team, which if you don't know what that is, it's, it's a group of these high school kids that are just nuts on fire for Jesus, and so they travel all over the world and tell people about him. You walk up on the street, hey, how's it going? Hey, pretty good, all right. Hey, I just wanted to, to talk to you for a couple minutes about Jesus. Hope that's okay. It's nuts. It's random. It's totally crazy, but it's, it's sick. And if you've never done, if you've never gone out street witnessing, I encourage you to do it. But anyway, it's not the point. The point is I was in the SWAT team and, and I got to travel all over the world telling people about Jesus. And one of the places that I got to go is New Zealand. Um, in 2007, I got to spend the better part of a month in New Zealand. And it was sick. It was so awesome to be there. And I really became attached to the land and to the culture and to the people there. And one thing that sort of freaked me out a little bit, but was really cool, was uh, this custom that they have. And we did it when we were leaving. A couple of the guys, you know, they they have this custom. They wanted to share it with us. And uh, to be really like close bonded with something, they have this thing where they share a breath, where you and so- another person share a breath. And I remember when this guy Clay told me about it, I'm like, that sounds a little bit weird. I don't know if I want to share a breath with anybody. I'm like, I mean, maybe if they're dying, I, I know how to do CPR, but uh, I'm not down to do that with somebody who's fully like aware of what's going on. He says, no, 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 this, this is how it happens. And, and what, what you do and what we did was you, you touch your forehead and the tip of your nose to their forehead and tip of their nose. And so you're literally, your faces are touching and you're, you're just this close and you're looking directly into each other's eyes. And it's such an intimate moment. And you just hold there and you pause there for a couple of seconds. And I'll tell you, going up to it, thinking about it, I'm like, this is weird I don't know how I feel about this. I mean, I, I don't know you that well. I mean, we just met like two weeks ago and now you want to be like almost kissing me. And, I, and you know, being, being an American, you know, super homophobic about that, you know, I was a little bit, it was, I was a little bit weirded out, but in that moment that I just manned up and did it, it was one of the coolest, most intimate moments that I've ever shared with another person. And uh, I know that sounds weird, creepy, whatever, but, but it was like in that moment, I was really close with that guy. His name was Clay. He was a really solid Christian. He was a great man. But uh, in that moment, I was so connected with that guy. And I, I don't know what it was. It was weird. Their, their tradition holds true. I mean, you do feel very intimate, very connected with that person. And I love that that's exactly the same image that God uses here in creation. Two things out of creating man that I like. The first one is, is that we're created out of the dust. 
You remember everything else God created out of nothing, right? He created earth, the plants, the birds, the fish, all the animals, cockroaches and mosquitoes and flies and and all these things God created out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. But man, he took some dirt and it says that he formed it together and that was man. God was so wise, I feel like, in doing that. Because we already have a complex of feeling pretty special. And we feel like we're just something like great, you know? And, and so often I feel like I'm the center of my own little universe. And I'm something really, really special. And there's no one out there like me. And we get sort of in our heads a little bit. And I love that God chooses to remind us that you're not that special. When it comes down to it, you're not much more than mud. You're a glorified dirt clod. And I love that because it reminds me that in my flesh, that's all I will ever be is a glorified dirt clod. When I start thinking about all the great things I do for God, I remember that they're filthy rags and that in my flesh, in just myself, I'm not much more than a, a, a piece of mud. But God came down and on a very intimate level breathed life into us. It says that we're one of the living creatures, which is how the animals are described as well. The rest of of creation that was living, we were a living creature, but we are unique from all the animals in that God came down and breathed life into us. Imagine, if you will, I'm not saying that this is what happened, but imagine, if you will, it's like what I, the story I told you about me and Clay in New Zealand, sharing a breath, nose to nose and forehead to forehead, very intimate and very close, sharing a breath. God breathed life into man. So that even though we're not much more than dirt clods in our flesh, because of God breathing life into us, we're now in his image. I love that. I love that. But we'll continue on reading. Picking up in, uh, in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed out of the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the river Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man to put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We'll pause right there for just a minute. Again, like I was talking about earlier in Christ, we 
We have rest. But we still continue to work just as God continued to work. On the seventh day, God rested. He ceased from creation, but he still continued to work. In the same way that we now have rest in Christ. We don't need to worry about being perfect. We don't need to worry about looking great. We don't need to worry about being holy or acceptable to God. We don't need to worry about sacrifices or all these things. We don't need to work anymore, but we can rest in Christ. In the same way, we still continue to work. Just like Adam did here. Adam partook in God's rest. But God still had a job for him. He put him in the garden where there was every tree that you could possibly ever imagine to want to eat. Everything was good in that garden. There was no death. There was no pain. There was no thorns. You never stubbed your toe. Lions didn't eat zebras and and all that kind of terrible stuff. It was just peace and harmony and rest. And, but Adam still had a job to do. God said, hey, Adam, be my gardener. How many of you have ever had like a garden? Not like a yard to take care of, but a garden. No? Maybe? Okay, like two people. Well, for those of you who haven't, I have. Well, my mom has, and I, I would garden with her sometimes when I was younger. It's an extremely like peaceful thing to garden. It's not something that you like really work at. Because it's so small, everything's so fragile, and it's actually really calming. It's really restful to have a garden. In fact, you know, many people say that, uh, you know, if you live out in New York or something like that, a really urban city, if you put a uh, window box, like a little planter, outside your window, and, you know, you keep some, like, herbs or things like that in there, that you'll actually be more peaceful. You'll live a more peaceful life and a more restful life if you just have this window box of a garden. Even a small garden can make you feel at peace. And that's what's going on here. I love that we get to see once again just another image of work for God is not hard. It's not hard. When we go out and we tell someone about Jesus, it's not hard. Setting up chairs before church, it's not that big of a deal. Ushering and greeting people and just loving on them and being a happy face. It's not hard work. Working for God is not difficult. It's not a big deal. And we get to see that here. That work, even work for God, is restful. I love that. A little bit of background about um, Eden because there's some dispute about it with people. Um, A little bit. We have no idea where the Garden of Eden is. We don't. We don't have a clue. If you ask me where the Garden of Eden was, I couldn't tell you with any degree of certainty. A lot of people think that it's sort of where Baghdad is right now, which I know seems so weird. Like the Garden of Eden's in Baghdad, like that nasty, gross desert that there's all this war going on in. But understand that before the flood, this would have been uh, paradise. The reason why they think that is because of the talk about the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, which almost connect perfectly at Baghdad. So there's a really good chance that the Garden of Eden was in Baghdad. Uh, but people have had different ideas over the years. Uh, one, one guy, he was a British general, um, General Gordon. He thought that it was in uh, Southeast Asia, on an island in Southeast Asia. I don't know why he thought that, but he just decided that this must be where Eden was. Another guy was completely convinced that Eden was actually in the Arctic Circle. 
whatever. Columbus thought that Eden was in South America. But most scholars, if they have a good guess, it's probably in Baghdad because of these two rivers. But what happened was when, as we're going to read tomorrow, when we got kicked out of the garden, God set up an angel there to guard it, to keep Adam and Eve from coming back into the garden. And then this nasty thing happened called the flood. And it completely wiped out, destroyed everything that God had created on the face of the earth, including the Garden of Eden. So this day, nobody knows where it is, but the point is God made a garden in the middle of Eden and uh, put Adam there and had him garden, garden it. So, make sense? Cool. I'll take that lack of a response as a good thing. I, uh, we're, come on, family, we're, we're a family here. You can, like, respond back when I ask a question. It's not necessarily rhetorical. Um, Unless it's very obviously rhetorical. Like, don't tell me if I ever ask how you sin today. Please don't yell it out. But if I ask okay, like, it's okay to respond. (laughs) But we're moving on. Chapter 2, verse 15. (laughs) Thank you, Jeremy. Amen. (laughs) Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall surely not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. I just want to take a second to point out this. Not only is it easy to work for God, but his rules aren't tough. His rules aren't tough. Okay, you can do anything you want. You can eat of any tree here. You can... Get sick eating all of the nectarines you want to eat or all the the peaches or plums or schnozberries or whatever fantastic fruit was in the garden. Eat whatever you want. There's just one tree you can't eat. One thing. Just don't eat that or you're going to die. Everything else, go for it. Have fun. God's rules are very simple. God's rules are very simple. In fact... There are 613 laws in the Old Testament, including the Big Ten. But Jesus says that all of the law, all of the prophets can be summed up in two phrases, two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God's rules aren't difficult. Not difficult. Because of of Christ dying on the cross for us and shedding his blood so that we might be free from sin, free from death, reconciled to God, able to have a relationship with him, and ultimately to spend eternity with him, God's rules are pretty much simple like they were in the Garden of Eden. There's only one thing we have to do, really, and that's love. Love. It's pretty straightforward. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Give him everything that you've got, everything that you are, everything you want to be, everything you do, everything you say. Love God with it, and then love other people like you love yourself. God's rules are not difficult. And in fact, as we study through the Bible together, we're going to be looking at that time and time and time and time and time again. Because if Jesus said that all the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two phrases, we're going to put him to the test. Amen? Amen? All right, there we go. (laughs) 
You're just going to have to get used to it. I, I like to hear response because otherwise I feel like... I feel like I'm a comedian again, and I'm just like, I don't know, it's a weird feeling. So I want you to respond back, and I want you to, to say things and respond. Anyway, we'll continue on. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. I want to point something out right here. Everyone listen up. Where... When in the Bible did Adam complain that he felt lonely? (laughs) There we go. Never. Didn't happen. Adam never looked at God and said, man, I really wish I had a helper. It didn't happen. Adam didn't, Adam wasn't walking with God in the garden and, how you doing today, God? God's like, oh, I'm great. How, how are you doing, Adam? Kind of lonely. A little bit sad. Never happened. Adam had no idea that he was alone and that it wasn't even good for him to be alone. But God knew that it wasn't good for man to be alone. And he decides to make him a helper. So often, so often, family, No, I take that back. Not so often. Every time. Every time. I can say every time because he's God and because the Bible says so. God knows your need before you even need it. God knows your need before you know you need it. God knew that Adam needed a helper and that it wasn't good for him to be alone before he could even come to the conclusion that he was alone. How many of you today have a need? Raise your hand. I have a need. Um, it's a little bit pathetic, but um, I broke my iPhone. <laughs> I got my new iPhone just the other day, and I cracked it. It's destroyed. Well, it still works, but here you can kind of see, oh, my mom sent me a voicemail. Um, I guess my mom called. <laughs> it's just destroyed. It's cracked. I need a new phone. (laughs) Kind of stinks. I'm sure many of you have greater needs than me having an iPhone. I just wanted to point out that my iPhone dropped and cracked. And I'm a little bit sad about that fact. But God knew that I was going to need a new iPhone before I even needed it. And no matter what your need is that you have, God knew that you would need it. God knew that that need would arise before it even happened. He knew that you would have that need before he created the earth. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows you better than you know yourself, family. And if you have a need, I want you to know and to understand that God knows that you have that need. He hasn't forgotten. He's not slow. It's not that he's not paying attention. And he hasn't forgotten about it. He hasn't forgotten. It's not like God's sitting up there and is like, Oh, man. Jesus. Jesus like, what, Father? I totally forgot to heal Susie. I just, it just slipped my mind. She, I, I can't believe I forgot to do that. No, it doesn't happen like that. God knows your need before you need it. Just like he knew Adam needed a helper before he needed it. 
We'll continue reading, though, in verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called uh, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But Adam, but for Adam, there was not found a helper for him. We'll pause there. God realizes that Adam has a need. And so what does he do? He comes up with a information strategy. He comes up with a way to show Adam that he has a need in the first place. So he takes all the birds, all the animals of the garden, um, probably not all the animals in the world. Understand the Garden of Eden is not the world. It was just a garden in, a, in, in Eden, in city, in a city called Eden. That was so confusing. I can't believe I couldn't spit that out. But the point is, it's just a garden. And uh, I, I don't believe that Adam sat for, you know, 18 weeks straight and just in a procession line. And it's like, mm, aardvark. <sighs> Next antelope and so on and so forth and i mean i guess it it would explain some things like dog and cat it was sort of like i'm just sick of naming things so we're just gonna do it a syllable dog that's the ops that's backwards of god that'll be easy so we'll just i don't think that worked that way i'm pretty sure it was just the animals that were in the garden but the point isn't that adam would name them although That did work out really nice. We have a lot of animal names because Adam named them that. But God brings all the animals and they have their mates, right? I imagine that that God brought the animals in a similar way that he brought the animals to Noah, two by two. I imagine that that's how he did it. And they come up two by two and it's like zebra, lion. And, And next to the lion is a lioness. And next to the zebra is a zebra ass. <laughs> Didn't think that one through. And Adam realizes after he names all these animals that they all have they all have counterparts and, and I don't. When you have a need, God reveals that need to you. Again, not only does God know your need before you have it, but he's the one who shows you that you have the need in the first place. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. You're his son. You're his daughter. And he wants to bless you. But in order to bless you, he wants to first show you that you have a need. Imagine with me that uh, you ran one of these camera street light things and it flashed and you ran the red light and you kept driving and you never got the ticket in the mail. You never got in the mail. But what happened was, is I actually went down and I went and paid 80 grand to cover your red light ticket. It was a really expensive ticket. Just imagine this is California. It could happen, right? And I paid 80 grand, but you never knew. You just never got the thing in the mail. Would you be blessed out of your mind that I spent 80 grand to cover your ticket? No, because you didn't even know that you needed 80 grand to cover the ticket. 
But now imagine if I come to you and I give you the envelope and you open it up and it's got your, the picture there. Have you ever gotten one of those tickets? They're like the most awful pictures. It's just like you're driving through and you're just like, like the worst pictures imaginable. And I show you your little picture thing and next to it, it's 80 grand is the ticket fine. And you freak out because I don't know about you, but in real life, I don't have 80 grand laying around. You freak out that it's an 80 grand ticket. And I take it and I rip it up. You're like, what are you doing? It's okay. I already paid it for you. I covered it. You would be so stoked. You'd be blessed. You'd be jumping for joy, hugging me. You'd be, you'd be so stoked. You'd go tell everybody, oh my gosh, I had this $80,000 ticket and this guy just paid for it. He covered it. In the same way, in order for you to be stoked about God hooking you up, he wants to first show you that you have a need in the first place. Adam knew God's need before he needed it, just like he knows your need before you need it. But God is allowing the circumstances, the trials, and the shortcomings in your life to be there so that he can show you your need for him. So that he can show you your need for him. What happens after God takes all the animals, precedes them around, and and shows Adam that he needs a helper? Well, we read in verse 21 that the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. We'll pause right there. I, uh, I went to a wedding recently and uh, it was a really good friend of mine. Um, when I graduated high school, I went on a road trip If you've been going to the study for a long time, you might have heard this story because Josh talked about it uh, when I came back and I I shared a couple of stories about it. But I went on this epic road trip with a a friend of mine and uh, we were gone for like 40 days and we were just all over the United States. It was it was really rad. In fact, we left um, we left it like right about this time and we we left on um, June 30th. So yeah, in just a couple of days, we left on June 30th, we booked it, we were at Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July, and uh, we got to go all over the place, I'm totally going on a tangent, but the point is, I went with this one guy, Brennan, he was a good friend of mine, and he just got married, and uh, so I got to be in his wedding, and we went down, and it was a rad wedding down at, um, uh, in San Diego on Coronado Island, super beautiful, and the pastor that, that officiated it was the bride's grandpa. So it was a really special wedding, you know, for everyone there. It was a small wedding. And uh, the grandpa shared uh, a, a really cool adage. And I'm sure if you've been to a wedding recently, you've heard it before. It's that God didn't take the bone out of man's head that woman should be over him or his foot that she should be trampled underneath him but from his side that she should be equal with him, from under his arm that he might protect her, and from near his heart that, he, that she might be beloved by him. And I love that God was so wise in doing that. I'm not going to go ahead and, and attribute to God that that's why he did it, but it sure is poetic. It sure is sweet. And I wouldn't put it past God for doing it for that very reason. Why a rib? Because it's out of his side. 
Understand, fellas, sometimes we get a little bit of Christian chauvinism going on. Oh, women are the weaker vessel. Our fragile little sisters, lesser than us, make me a sandwich. I'm just joking, ladies. It was a joke. This is where you laugh. Every girl in the place just went, what? I'm just kidding. But we do. We get a little bit Christian chauvinism going on. But understand, that's not the case. Woman Eve was created for man to complete him. She was to be his opposite, everything that he wasn't, to complete the things that he wasn't. And understand that this helper was not like a servile term. It had nothing to do with being underneath him or helping him in like a servant sense. Because this is the exact same Hebrew word that Moses uses to describe God as his helper in delivering the children of Israel from Pharaoh. This is exactly the same word when the, when the, uh, Pardon me. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek in something called the Septuagint, the Greek word here for helper is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit. So this is definitely is no servant type helper. This is even a helper that uh, it's the same word used to describe God. And uh, so this is women were created guys to be uh, not only to complete us, but to be our better half. And uh, so be stoked about that, ladies. I, I'm not... I swear it was, the sandwich thing was just a joke. <laughs> Please don't tell anyone I said that. <laughs> don't tell Josh. Um, or Katie, his girlfriend, because that wouldn't go over well either. <laughs> but I love that God, in, in his wisdom, he comes, he takes Adam's rib, and he makes Eve out of the exact same DNA, the exact same makeup that Adam is made out of, which is why we see in Genesis chapter 1, when there's sort of the, the short version of the creation of man, that it says that God created man in his image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Not only was man created in the image of God, but since woman was created literally out of the exact same building blocks that man was created out of, women are exactly in the image of God as well. Now this begs the question, I'm going to go on another quick little tangent. Well, how is that possible? Men and women look completely different, and women obviously look a lot better than men. So how can we both be in the image of God? We're not in the image of God in the sense that we have two eyes, a nose, mouth, and other anatomical parts. We're in the image of God in that we're creative. We have rational thought, logic. We, we create works of art. We love. We hate. That's right, God hates. God hates sin. We're emotional. We have written in us all of these things. In this way, we're created in the image of God. And guys have, I'd say, probably about half of that, half of these little attributes that are uh, godlike, especially the logic thing. Guys are more logic and rational. And then girls have the emotional side where God is absolutely, we see time and time and time again, God being emotional about things. He has love. He experiences hate, anger. And so together as one, 
Yeah, we're created in the image of God, male and female. Two distinct parts, two distinct uh, types of, of people, but people, humans, us, we are created in the image of God. His workmanship. That word when it says that he formed man out of the mud, it speaks of intention. Like a potter with clay. When a potter goes to make a a clay vase, he spends a long time forming it, and he has in his mind an idea of how he wants the shape to be. If you go to make a vase, you don't just put it on a wheel and start spinning the thing around and just stick your hand in the middle of it and then just rip it off and it's like, ta-da! It's not going to be a vase, it's going to be a lump of clay. But God specifically knit and formed us together to be in his image. Yeah, we are just dirt. But because of God, we're special. I love that. Created in his image. Male and female, he created them. So God puts man to sleep, does a little bit of surgery, creates woman, and wakes Adam up, and we get to see his response. Then the, man's, then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's a couple of cool things about this passage. The first is that this is the first words recorded of man ever speaking. I love that. That's poetic. It's love for his wife. I really like that. The second thing is this is the first time in all of Scripture that we have a, uh, a poetic couplet, which is a type of poetry. Learned about it in high school. I don't know if you remember or not. I won't explain it. Point is, it's cool because it's poetry. And uh, here we have a man doing poetry, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and so I guess this is just to take out of context and say, guys, write poetry for your girlfriends and wives one day. Completely ripped out of context, but I promise it's a good idea. But... Uh, <laughs> But Adam's stoked. He sees woman and he says, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. The reason why he says that she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man is woman in Hebrew is Isha and man is Ish. So Ish and Isha. And, uh, And so here we have Adam stoked. Why? Because he had what he never knew he really needed. Perfectly given by God. A helper. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And man, did he love her. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In this passage, I think, is the real, in my opinion, the real secret of why God knew that it wasn't good for man to be alone. You remember, we're created in the image of God. There's one God, but three persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, right? The Trinity. One God, three persons. There's companionship there between the three. We see the three interacting all throughout Scripture. Since we were created in the image of God, 
God looked at man and knew that it wasn't good for him to be alone because he created man in his image, and part of his image is being multifaceted. He's three persons, but one God. And so I love here, in the institution of marriage, it says there that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become as one flesh. One flesh. Much like the Trinity. One God, three persons. Now when you're married, two distinct individual lives knit together to be one. Truly, we're created in the image of God. And I want to spend just a second to talk about, briefly, it's a little bit off, little bit off topic. But I want to talk about marriage and, and what's going on in our culture today. Because, family, listen up. Homosexuality and, and uh, homosexual marriage is probably one of the smallest things threatening the marriage relationship today. That's the thing that we got all uppity about, and especially, uh, you know, in, in politics, Christians will get very harsh that, uh, that what's happening is because of, of laws being tried to pass about homosexual unions, homosexual marriage, that this is ruining our marriage relationship. And this is a complete perversion of the Bible. And don't get me wrong, it is. But you know what's also a perversion? The fact that 50% of the church is divorced. 50% of the church is divorced. That's not okay. That's not okay. We read later on in Scripture, Jesus talks about it, and so does Paul. Paul says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall be as one flesh. And even God divinely inspired in his word, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus says, speaking of divorce, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And family, I know I'm pretty sure nobody in here is actually married yet. Right? Anybody married in here? Okay. Well, soon. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> Garibay? I'm just kidding, dog. <laughs> I'm just calling out. I'm just calling you out tonight. I don't know why. I think it's because you're wearing white, and so it's just like you stand out. Um, but anyway, family is, as you progress toward marriage and as one day, most of you will be married. Um, it's possible that there's people in here that God has called to singleness, uh, but that's a calling and it's not for everybody. And so most of you will get married and you decide today whether or not you will ever get divorced. You decide today. You're like, Tyler, how is that possible? What do you mean I decide today? You never know what could happen. We might get down the road and we could have some irreconcilable differences. Work them out. Reconcile them. Well, we, you know, you, I mean, you never know what could happen. I mean, she, she might get sick and, and, you know, I might, you know, fall in love with her nurse. 
in sickness and in health, till death do you part. Hey, I'm not talking about being widowed. Um, You know, there's a lot of people who get widowed and uh, the Lord brings around another person for them to to marry and praise God for that. That's sick. Praise God that that happens for for many of those people. But uh, when it comes to divorce, you get to decide today because you purpose in your heart today how you're going to live your life from here on out. For the most part, family, we in here are all still in the prime of our youth. We are young men and women. And C.S. Lewis once put it that the foundations of tomorrow are built in the youth. This is what he means. Your life, 20, 30 years from now, is decided by the decisions you make today. By the decisions that I make today. Well, not your life, but my life, but the decisions I make today. You get to decide now if divorce is not going to be an option. I decided five years ago now. Five years ago, I made the decision because my parents are divorced, and uh, I know the repercussions that come along with that and the pain, the hardship that comes along with that. I decided that Divorce will never even be a word that is spoken in my house. When I get older and I do get married, prayerfully, the Lord tarries, and uh, we get a place, and uh, you know, in the, in the drawer of the desk, in the top drawer, there's going to be a dictionary because I need one. And uh, because they use words on CNN that, like, I don't even know what that means. And... Uh, Actually, I was watching PBS, the kids' TV show, and they use words I don't know what they mean either, but the point is we're going to have a dictionary. And something that I purposed in my heart is that when I'm married and we have a dictionary in the house, I'm going to go in and cut out divorce from the dictionary. It's not even going to exist in the dictionary. That's not a word that's ever going to be spoken in my house. My dad, my stepmom, Anytime I'm over there, they're always joking about divorce. And it's just the most horrific thing to me. Because it's like, if it's easy for you to joke about, it's going to be easy when that day comes. And it's like, well, we've been joking about it for years. I mean, it's, we're totally callous to the issue of divorce. We've both been divorced before already, so what's the big deal? It'll just be another one. My, grand, my grandpa, my grampy, I don't call him grampy. I don't know why that. My grandpa has been married and divorced six times now. Twice to, the, twice to one woman. So there was someone in between. Very awkward. But he allowed that to be an option. And he still does to this day. He is a Christian. And the woman he's married to is a very strong Christian. And he still to this day will talk about, well, you know, I'll divorce you. When you have that mentality, when you think that that's an option, it becomes an option. It, com- it becomes a very viable option. But you get to decide today, family, whether or not you will get a divorce one day. So decide wisely. Because what God's joined together, let no man separate. It's like uh, playing with, uh, you know, little kids. And uh, little kids still play with Play-Doh. I'm one of those little kids that still plays with Play-Doh. And, uh, and 
the cool thing about Play-Doh is you can take two colors, you can mix them together, and it'll make another color. Like, you take blue and red and mix them together, and it'll sort of make this, like, purplish thing. But if you try and separate those two pieces of Play-Doh to be just red and just blue, it's not going to happen. That's one piece of Play-Doh now. And you are never fully separating that thing. The same is true, family, in marriage. God, from the very foundations of the earth, established marriage. This isn't something that America came up with. This isn't something that England came up with when they seeded the colonies over here. God established marriage at the very foundations of the earth. Remember, Genesis, the book of beginnings. Him revealing himself through his creation, and part of that being marriage. That union, the two shall become as one flesh. It helps us to understand the trinity. What God's joined together, let no man separate. And family, if you get down that road and you allow divorce to be an option and you do get a divorce one day, God will forgive you. Jesus died for that sin. But understand that you, in doing that, are irreparably damaging yourself, your spouse, your understanding of God. And you are more proving to the world that marriage is not sanctified. Marriage isn't special. Anybody should get married. When as Christians we go and get divorced, we prove that, hey, yeah, I guess it's probably not a big deal for a man to marry his chihuahua. Why not? I mean, if everybody's getting divorced, marriage must not mean that much anyway, even to these Christians. Half of them are divorced anyway. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm not. I'm not condemning anyone who has been divorced. And if, uh, you know, you have parents who are divorced, I'm not condemning them, and I don't encourage you to either. Because that's why Jesus died, remember? To forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. But family, the two, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be as one flesh. And what God's joined together, let no man separate. Let no man tear asunder, like it says in the King James. Decide today, whether or not you will get a divorce. So in closing, a little bit of recap, because like I said, it's just how the chapter lied, laid, fell, whatever. It's how the chapter fell and how the study fell today with all these introductions. It was a little choppy, so I really want to go back and sort of tie it all together and really look at everything that we looked at so far, okay? Intro to the Bible. How many books are in the Bible? Awesome. Extra credit, how many are in the Old Testament? 39. How many are in the New Testament? 27. Easy way to remember that. What's 2 times 7? I can't believe I screwed that. What's 3 times 9? 3 times 9. My bad. (laughs) Just remember how many are in the Old Testament. 39. What's three times nine? 27. That's how many are in the New Testament. Gosh, that was pathetic. That was almost a really cool illustration, right? And then I botched it. 
Uh, how many authors? 40. 40. Awesome. Like, Aaron sounds really, like, unenthused to answer. He's up there, he's like, 40. How many, how many authors? How many, what span of years was the Bible written over? 1,600 years. Right on. Man, I love this. You guys are listening and responding. Um, what is Genesis? What's the theme of Genesis? It's the book of beginnings. That's right. We saw two themes, and we're going to see two running themes in that throughout all of God's introduction to the Bible This book of Genesis, and it's God reveals himself through first, his creation, and secondly, through his chosen people. That's right. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and some other little people in between. What can all of the law and the prophets be summed up in? There's there's two commandments. The first one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is, Love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to be looking at all of the Bible as we study through Scripture. We're going to be looking at it through the lens of these two commands. How through this can we practically, what does this mean to practically love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And how can we practically love one another as we love ourselves through the, through the lessons that we learn? We, uh, we saw there in Genesis, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, that God... Rested, thank you. I'm like waiting awkwardly. God rested. God rested. But remember, this doesn't mean that he stopped working. He didn't stop working. He continued to work, but he saw that it was finished. And there was a rest in that work being finished. Just in the same way, when Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it was finished. It is finished. In that statement, we find our rest. All six days of creation, there was morning, there was evening, first, second, third day, but that didn't happen on the seventh day. Why? Because his rest never ends. His rest never ends. The same thing is true for us today. In Christ, our rest in him as we trust in him. As we give our life to him, all of our worries, all of our complaints, all of our anxieties, we give them to him. We have rest forever in him, family. As we read on, we learned that God created Adam out of the dust, out of the dirt. That's right. We're not much more than mud in the flesh. And then he breathed life into us. God breathed life into man. Creating us in his image. We saw that God put man in the Garden of Eden, and God, dis- God saw Adam's need that he was alone. He was lonely. God said it's not good for man to be alone. And so what did God decide to do? He decided to create him a helper. That's right. So he put Adam into a deep sleep, popped out one of his ribs, made this beautiful bombshell woman, woke Adam up. Hey, buddy. You want to see this? Look what I made for you. Wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. Wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. God didn't really say that. Um, well, it's never 
You never heard that phrase? Some people are like, I'm not, I don't understand that. My mom used to say that. Like, she'd make eggs and bacon. Wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. Uh, it comes from a movie. Not a good movie, though, so don't see it. I won't tell you what it is. Um, God creates Eve out of his rib so that she might be equal with him. Equal. Sorry, guys. Women are not below us. They are the weaker vessel in the sense that we need to protect them. We need to be there for them. We need to look out for them. We need to provide for them. But that's a responsibility that falls on us rather than a weakness on their part. Adam woke up and he said, whoa, whoa, man. Woman. Half the people got that. Uh, Woke up and he said, this is bone of my bone. Finally, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And she became Adam's companion, his helper. And God said, he decreed, that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become as one flesh. A perfect image of God. As we read through Genesis, please family, please read with us. Please. This is the whole point. This is why we come here. If you're not reading along, you're missing the point of this study. The point is that we're in the word daily. Why? Not for religion, not to check it off our spiritual to-do list, but to read God's love letter to us. So I encourage you to read it, meditate on it, chew on it, morning, noon, and night. Memorize bits of it. Read along with us. We're going to read a chapter a day. I'm going to be reading other stuff as well. I encourage you to be doing the same, but read with us. So tomorrow, Genesis chapter 3. Awesome. So none of you have an excuse. Oh, I didn't know. We're just counting. One, two, three. Tomorrow, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to take a look at the fall. And I encourage you that before you go to spend time in God's word, get alone, get quiet, Lock yourself in your closet if you have to. Push everything out of your mind. Think about nothing other than him. Spend time in prayer and ask him to reveal himself to you through his word. And I promise he will. Test me. Promise you. It'll happen. He will reveal himself to you through his word. And you will grow so much closer to him if you only meditate on his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and that we can come here and study it. And God, as we jump back into the beginning of the Bible, I pray that you would bless this time. Stir up our hearts to really hunger and thirst for your word, Lord. God, I pray that we would meet you in your word, that we get closer to you and learn so much more about you and get so much more stoked on you, God. Fall deeper and deeper and deeper in love with you. Because you first loved us. Thank you for your word, for giving it to us. God, I pray that we never take it for granted. Father, as we go our way now, I pray that you would keep our thoughts fixed on you. Not on ourselves, this mud, this dirt, Lord. But that our lives would be about, in the beginning, you. 
In your precious son's name. Amen. May the Lord richly bless you and keep you. May God cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance to you and give you peace.